Hi, I'm Caitlin Kadju, an animator and illustrator. And I'm Ira Marks. I write and draw comics. And this is a podcast about the mysterious and magical process of bringing cartoon operas to life. On today's episode, spoiler, Mm. we're taking you to the opera house for some highbrow entertainment with our first Looney Tune. What's opera, dog? Welcome to Cartoon Feelings. Kaylin, you got your opera glasses? Uh, yes. All right, we're in our <clears throat> we're in our fancy outfits. The uh, we're looking at the stage. The curtains are drawn. The orchestra is settling in. They're doing like that those little like toony bits that you hear sampled in like oh yeah techno sometimes. Like it's well, I hear it sampled in when I listen to classical music, which I do quite frequently. I guess it can appear in both cases. So yeah, uh, <laughs> to the sort from the horse's mouth. The vaulted ceiling is painted. The lights go down, the curtains pull back, and there he is, Eric Colossal, our oh. guest for today, uh, dressed, <laughs> as a Val- dressed as a Valkyrie. Yeah. Oh, oh my God. Good luck, beautiful. I guess. Yeah. Can you <laughs> sing us a pretty song, sir? Yeah. Please? I'd love Thank to. Um, oh, but I can't because of contractual reasons. That's true. We did have all those documents we yeah. uh, had open. Yeah, right them. before he said that, he had actually done it, and then we realized we had to go back and cut it out for legal yeah. reasons. So I'll, it, I'll just but do it, it did happen. <sighs> what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> it was really good. <laughs> all right, Eric Colossal, our good friend and guest, cartoonist, author of a variety of children's graphic novels, and maker of video games. So a classic one of our guests that are our multimedia master is the phrase I'll be using from now on. Thank Eric, you. you're all over, you're all over the friggin' map with your skill set. Yeah. Including opera. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My first love, second wow. love, uh, <laughs> low poly video games. <laughs> In a way they are very similar. Okay, Eric. Um, so today we're talking about a, a, a fi- some fifties Looney Tunes stuff. I think we got a, this Caitlin. This is our first Looney Tunes, as you said. True. In the yes, intro. I covered that. <laughs> um, so I think we just have to kind of set the stage for where this stuff fits in our life. So, guest first. Have you done a Silly Symphony? No, no. we haven't or done Mary Me- or a Merry Melody. No, those are great questions. We have yet to really tackle the kind of musical animation marketplace. <laughs> <laughs> it's never too late. Maybe we'll do one as our next little. Well, we short around the holidays. I think this is a merry melody, is it not? This is a merry melody, yeah. Okay, so yeah, it's happening. Yep, this is the start of our journey. Yeah. So, Eric, did you grow up with this stuff? You and your dad watching these things as a kid, or what's the deal? Yeah, I don't. I I think I took it for granted growing up because they're just you can't see them on TV really anymore. I mean, it actually took me a little bit to find this to watch. What's Opera Doc? Um, and I just assume everything's on YouTube and this wasn't, but 
I don't even know where I watched it. Because I guess Nickelodeon. I I don't know, but I never assumed that they were new. I always knew they were old, but every time <laughs> I saw a new one, it was new. So, like, I never, I barely saw reruns. So even though, like, when when I was looking up this one, I was like, 1957. Surely that's wrong. Surely it is not from 1957. <laughs> I saw this when I was a kid. Yeah. <clears throat> but, um, yeah, it's, you know, it's one of those founding parts of the body, one of those pillars that just makes the humor that, that you have growing up and makes you want to draw cartoons, make you want to figure out your characters, because you got to have your characters. Um, and uh, it's, like I said, it's it's old, but... It just doesn't feel old to me. Yeah. The principles are all relevant. Well, I have thoughts about that specific thing. Is that like, these are like the original shit posts. Are you familiar <laughs> with shit posting? I mean. <laughs> Which is where young teens post dumb bullshit memes online that don't make sense, but are really funny. But like watching you, yeah. this, I was like, oh my God, just the way a- a- like animation happens in these, like they're just like, you know, it'd be really funny is yeah. if like you just went and like disappear. Like it just feels like nonsense, but mm-hmm. in a really fun way that makes it feel very modern, actually. Yeah. The stuff that makes you feel dated is usually like, I watched Duck Amuck after I watched this one because that's also a great Looney Tune. And there's like, you know, Daffy Duck's just pissed off the entire time during that's the whole point of that mm-hmm. episode. And he says like, well, this is a funny way to run a railroad. And I was like, yeah, that's how you know that this is like an old cartoon. <laughs> but the jokes feel very persistent in time. Yeah. To- yeah. That's exactly how I feel about it, too. It's it's almost like the the cartoon short, like the gag based cartoon short is defined by this and Duck and Muck and a couple other ones. Um, this one specifically because of like the Bugs Bunny element, um, whereas the other ones are uh, a little different because I feel like Daffy and Porky and some of the lesser tunes aren't, uh, they just don't have the same energy that Bugs does where he's like a lot more heroic. And I guess you kind of want to be the Bugs, whereas like you don't really want to be the Daffy. <laughs> but yeah, Never. The, all the gags in this hold up. And that's because I feel like anything made that is gaggy is just living somewhat in the shadow of the design of this cartoon. Well said. I also, that feeling, there's probably like a Scandinavian word for it. The, uh, the feeling of being a kid and knowing something's old, but it's new to you. There must be a, a word for that. <laughs> for yeah. Because <that>. <laughs> <it's, laughs> it sounds like old time radio when you're listening to it. It looks like your grandmother's wallpaper but it's funny to you. <laughs> my grandma never kid. had wallpaper this nice. No. This well designed. <laughs> That's my absolutely grandma's wallpaper no. was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> Maurice Noble designed my grandmother's wallpaper. <laughs> I think well there's it's interesting because it's cartoons and for some reason cartoons um like there's a missing spot in a child's brain that only cartoons can get into. It's like some so sort of true. like um thing that chemical touches brain. What is that? Uh you know, brain stuff. Anyway, um, so there's this, like, kids like seeing cartoons. I liked seeing cartoons, but at the same time, I, I didn't watch Nick at Night because that was old. That was from the past. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, but I, I, I would watch a cartoon that was, like, decades older than what I was watching uh, in, in cartoons. But I wouldn't watch live action like that, even though I'm sure a lot of those gags hold up 
and a lot of it is still very funny but <clears throat> maybe because it's in color that's also why I, I, I was more receptive to it but there's this timelessness i mean the other thing that that this particular cartoon has going for it is it's lampooning opera which is just a thing that we have been lampooning since maybe <laughs> opera was created like we're, like right. have you been have either of you ever been to the opera no no, no i've never been to the opera is the opera funny yes the opera's funny <laughs> i know everything about it's it like, do I we everything all know I about know. the opera yet? <laughs> yeah so the fact that it's still that also still holds up that we all get it that it's that it's opera and all that stuff because i was looking uh at the the two cartoons that came up before and after this one. And one of them is called Boston Quacky, which is a parody of Boston Blackie, which is a, uh, um, like a detective story from back, back in the day. I was like, nobody knows what that is. Mm -hmm. I mean, I could watch it and still know that it's a detective show, but there's a, there's specific references happening in that. Like Peter Laurie's in that one, I think. And it's like, that's where I learned who Peter Lorre was by watching these <laughs> cartoons. I, I thought he was a cartoon until I learned that he was a real man. But <clears throat> this one holds up for many reasons. But I think also because there's, they picked a timeless, apparently a timeless thing to make jokes about, which is the opera. Mm -hmm. I think the, the musical element does a lot. I, uh, mm -hmm. In my style of having to ruin everything I love by just dissecting it, I'm also reading like a Weird Al book. And there's a big chapter on parody. It's just the it's just a true dry breakdown of Weird Al and why he is funny. Um, and it talks a lot about how the pairing of something contemporary and classic, it, it makes like this great formula. So like the Weird Al songs that hold up the best are the ones like... Uh, What's it called? The Saga Begins, where you have a new thing at the time, which is like a Star Wars movie. Heard of them? And, <laughs> Big fan. And uh, a da uh, more dated, but still relevant in that it is a classic song like Don McLean's American Pie. And by putting those two things together, you gain more of a legacy for the parody product. So it's like Chuck Jones must have just had the sense that... Um, really doubling down on opera because a lot of the older Looney Tunes cartoons kind of dip into it every once in a while, but like really going into it with their characters that are at the peak of their popularity at this time, I think kind of cements this as like just representative of their whole body of work. Well, yeah, I, the opera thing I didn't pick up on as much comprehensively, although it's definitely true. It's like the classical music thing mm -hmm. like i have a very hard time when i think of silly symphonies like disney stuff like i don't remember what they sound like yeah what I, like that's not i remember the visuals and like for looney tunes i'm like those are the classical music cartoons and i'm sure it's like in part contributing to why i really like classical music even to this day uh and this is like an ancient memory so i can't even tell you where it's from i think it's from a podcast that i listened to years and years ago where i first heard of this like touring show where they have like bugs bunny at the symphony and they basically are like showing the looney tunes cartoons and like playing like an orchestra is mm -hmm. playing the music at the same time which i think is a great idea and whoever was talking about it was like this is like a kid's first introduction to a lot of this stuff right like you might only know it from this and yeah. i was like holy sh like that is actually really true so it like you're taking these really old pieces of music and just like just culturally entrenching like your own stuff mm -hmm. in the same space. And so now like a lot of kids would know a bunch of like orchestral like orchestral 
classic songs that otherwise they may not know. But also it's like forever. I don't want to say tainted, but like by having like a, the image of Bugs Bunny like crawling around on Elmer Fudd's bald head. <laughs> it's like permanently yeah. inscribed in there too. <laughs> the music is very interesting also because uh, the Merry-Go-Round Broke Down song, the Merry Melody song, mm-hmm. came out in 1937, which is 20 years before this What's Opera doc came out. So relatively, it was a contemporary song when mm. Merry Melodies was using it. And I never even thought about that because in my brain, watching this as a kid and up until now when I was doing the research on it, it's like old cartoon must have used even older music, like music right. from like <laughs> from like the tens, ten yeah. AD is when they use this music. But <clears throat> the music, I mean, all the all the the actors and movies they were lampooning were also uh, contemporary. But the music also wasn't that old when they put it in there, and. Um, I, I think about that, and I I allow myself to have grace when I am watching reboots of um, like Merry Melodies or Looney Tunes, and there's like a Lady Gaga song in there. I'll be like, mm-hmm. oh come on, don't you use that old music? Like they'd oh they didn't they used <laughs> modern music to 1950s. Okay, all right, calm down, everything will be fine. <laughs> like we are old now. That's the problem. <laughs> yeah. I feel like part of the joy of um, something I was surprised that I would like about doing the show, aside from talking to Caitlin constantly. No, we don't like that, actually. Go on. <laughs> is that um, the the question of what was it like at the time for like to see it, but also to have been making it like I feel like one of my favorite conversations was talking about um, like the making of Steamboat Willie and just being in the room yeah. while they're doing the Foley art in real time. So uh, I was looking into a little bit of just sort of how we arrive at what's opera doc. So, you know, Chuck Jones, we'll, we'll get to him in a bit. So it kind of begins with Michael Maltese, who is one of the main story guys for the Looney Tunes gang, as they call themselves at the time. And it's interesting. I found a track of kind of a commentary track that I think someone had pieced together from interviews in this era at a point where they started to understand that what's opera doc was going to be a classic for them because at the time of its release, it wasn't quite, I think it took a while of some reruns for it to really lock in. But Michael Maltese has this little quote and I got a lot of quotes here because these old guys, they love talking. He says, <laughs> we, were, we were making cartoons for grownups, which is like, yeah, okay. But um, he kind of, Uh, champions Tex Avery is making it okay for adults to indulge in absurdity and I I think at this point culturally we're like grown-ups can do whatever the hell they want they want to make jokes they can do it but at the time if you think about like the prestige of Disney and like post Fantasia which this movie this short is definitely like playing off a little bit of Fantasia stuff they're they really seem like caught in the shadow in some degrees of you know, Disney is the real stuff, and we're just sort of this little, like, ragtag group of, like, Sandlot kids making jokes and kind of coming to terms with that being a, a real thing, a real craft. Uh, I just thought that was kind of an interesting point of view from the makers. Let's I, just sit with that for a second. I, uh, like, I don't know too much about it. Like, I don't, I haven't read a lot about mm-hmm. what it was like, but it kind of makes sense to me because I also get the impression they had that, like, 
we're all like we're all besties like making you know mm-hmm. and like disney was a large studio so a lot of people didn't know each other like a lot of people worked at disney and were important people on a certain project or whatever and like never met walt disney like it just didn't happen mm-hmm. uh but here it always felt like oh, i was joking around with so-and-so i went over to his desk and i did the stuff it's like they kind of felt like there was like three people in a room which it t- totally was more than that yeah but from any interviews that I've seen, they all kind of have that energy. It's like a little squad. Right. It's a, And they're they're working through all the stages of production so consistently because this time the rule is five from Warner Brothers, the, the production team, is like, all right, all right, boys, we need five cartoons. Is it 10 or five? 10 in a year. It's, yeah, is, 10 yeah. in a year, five-week blocks or something yep, like that. Yep, five-week right? schedule per episode, 10 per year, plus two weeks for vacation. <laughs> How generous. <laughs> oh, boy. We can go to the, I don't know, the Jersey Shore, which probably... They probably go to a baseball game. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but it, it's just sort of that, um, I don't know. Eric, you and I talk sometimes. I feel like uh, like I, I'm not familiar with the kind of waves of production, but I, I can read your energy when you're like deep in the crunch on like something like a, a game that's about to release or something. And Caitlin, uh-huh. you too, like when you have yeah, like something you can tell. that's about to drop. Uh, it's usually because I'm swearing a lot. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I, f- I feel like that pace, it must be kind of exhausting to start and start over again in that kind of way. Uh-huh. I feel like also um, they're making jokes and that's a very short timeline that you just said about how long they had to make these things. But to the process of making a cartoon, making anything that takes that many steps and to have written jokes and then to hope that those jokes are still funny by the time you're done with it (laughs) and to, to, to trust that, like that also puts this stress in my opinion on creating something is I've read this joke a million times. The joke is no longer funny. And now I have to draw it happening and now, like, was my acting funny? I don't know. I'm not going to find out until I'm done with it. And then it's filmed and then it's shown to me and I have to look at it. And that, the fact that they're able to make these jokes uh, under that production schedule or uh, uh, any anything is really fascinating. Also because you were talking about Disney in my opinion, old Disney especially was not very funny. Right, exactly. Yeah. So It's like beautiful is what right. it is. <laughs> it's 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 beautiful. Or even just weird. Or weird. Like yeah. the Steamboat Willie or oh, whichever true. one we I think it was Steamboat Willie replays a bunch of animals as music like right, instruments and surreal. you're like I think they thought this was funny but it actually is just strange. <laughs> right. I okay, let me amend what I said. The Disney as a movie makers were not very funny. 100%, but yes, yeah. their shorts the 50s, their yeah. shorts were very amusing. Um, they had a lot of gags in them. So I could also see there's this other feeling of, I don't know if this is true. I'm just empathizing with the past that there's this other feeling of (laughs) we're goofy dudes making goofy things Mm -hmm. when the serious movie people are winning awards for their, their big movies. And here we are making (laughs) goofy jokes where a guy falls in love with a rabbit and, uh, and they almost kiss. Yeah. There's um. So Chuck Jones has a couple little lines of him 
you can see them wanting to stretch their wings a little bit because so we, we take this format of the five week production schedule. Chuck Jones specifically says that by the time they got by the time um, Michael Maltese had this idea of kind of going all in on this, this Wagner full, like cutting this, the, the 14 hours of music down to six minutes of jokes that this idea they were all really into. So what they did was they cut a couple weeks from some Roadrunner cartoons so they could earn themselves like a seven or eight week window for this because Chuck Jones, it's cute. He's like, oh, this is kind of like my Snow White in a way. And it's like, sorry, dude, it's not quite that good. That's beautiful, though. But good for him. Yeah, like it's it's they're they're pushing their the boundaries. And I love the strategy of, um you know, the production people don't need to, or the, the higher ups don't need to know we're giving up a week of a Roadrunner cartoon to earn a bit more time with this. That's like one of those things, I guess you just kind of learn to, to survive over time. If you want to like inject your art into your work, you have to kind of like strategize with your schedule in a way that earns you a little extra time on special projects. Yeah, honestly, I thought that was a stroke of genius on their part. I was like, what a brilliant move. It's like, we know we can kick out a Roadrunner thing in three weeks. Yeah. So schnip, like, I'm taking those two weeks. What I honestly, I wish, like, timelines these days, because I've worked on timelines very similar, Mm -hmm. which explains a lot why, like, a lot of my Atlantic videos were directly inspired by, like, Looney Tunes and old Disney stuff. Mm. Um, But, like, you... Train of thought, gone. Just absolutely fuck. Derailed. It was a great point, though, that I had, and now it's just like... <laughs> funny way to run a railroad. Um, oh, I, it was about timeline-specific. The railroad thing got me back on track. Uh, the timelines were, like, not transparent enough between the, the animators and, like, the higher-ups, whoever's just, like, so that they could get away with that, and now I feel like you can't. People are emailing you every five minutes to be like, where's the thing? Like, it needs to go out tomorrow, whatever. So you cannot do that, and I'm frankly jealous of their ability to be like, nobody has to know. <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> I would love to know which specific cartoon they borrowed time from, because I want to watch that one, too, to see if I could see any, like, Oh, I get it. I can see how they had to <laughs> rush this one out or uh, did any sort of cost cutting or maybe they reused a joke here and there or something like that. It'd be very interesting. Yeah. Well, he did specifically say it's a Roadrunner one, which makes sense because I feel like the rules of Roadrunner and Coyote, like Chuck Jones loves talking about his character rules. Those are all so in place. You just drop in, you remix some gags and you just have it. Yeah. And I'm sure they reuse backgrounds, I would imagine, for a, Probably. Lot, of, a lot of those. Um, and it, the other brilliant thing I never really thought about this era of Looney Tunes, most of them are like, uh, like the, the straight man and the joke person, right? Like it's, it's usually like two characters. There's no big crowd scenes really or anything. It's just characters running on or off the screen at any given moment. Because, you know, it's, it's funny how the way these guys talk, especially later in their career like this, it's, it's so much more about the strategy of how we plan like Chuck Jones talks about, yeah, not only the one thing of um, shifting around the weeks, but this idea of the the value of the single long shot, which most of those are sort of some of the funniest stuff in Looney Tunes when a character like might run way into the distance and come back <laughs> and there's no camera movement or anything. And then you think you're like, yeah, I guess a lot of this stuff just feels staged like a play anyway, where it's really... Uh, and we'll get into this guy, Maurice Noble, like his backgrounds are doing so much work to make these feel dynamic. Because if you look closely, the motion on the screen is so subtle or simple most of the time. Yeah, it's right? very minimal. Most of it is like 
cut to a still shot, character does something. Cut to a new shot, camera doesn't move. Like yeah. somebody walks through a door. <laughs> and that like a lot of it is that. It's yeah. great. And sometimes you'll get uh we made a layout background that's like five times higher than just a regular one. So mm-hmm. we get a long pan up and that's the camera motion. Yeah. That stuff is the, I feel like when we talk about this being a masterpiece, it's those choices, the reduction of it all to make it so simple, but still so effective. That's, that's worth more than like a good joke or the use of like a famous opera song. Um, you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I was going to say, I, I'm not necessarily envious of their five week timeline. And I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but just like for background, like I worked at the Atlantic for four years and I was making like two to four minute short like anime fully animated pieces whatever and i had like two weeks to make them and it's just me with like zero dollar budget zero resources of any kind whatever just like you start from nothing and then you finish it and sometimes i could steal extra time sometimes they were like actually have four days so it was a complete nightmare and i made a lot of trash probably but (laughs) it was really great because i had to make so much stuff that Mm. At the end of it all, I came out much, much better than I was to begin with. So I think it sucks to have such a short timeline. But, I mean, there's also a reason there's so many Looney Tunes. I've always right. personally wanted to – I just think this is would be really time-intensive, but I've wanted to go back and literally watch every single one. And maybe I will at some point. It's just been a little uh, – Like chronologically? Yeah, like just like uh-huh. go through the whole thing because I'm curious. There's a lot of – I'm like, are there a lot of ones here that actually aren't that good, like – Probably when you think of something that has such high volume that you you would have a lot of misses, but they basically had so much opportunity working together with the same people over and over again to really hone all, like all of their crafts and learn how to work together really well. That is kind of appealing. Yeah. And the way like it's appealing to work at the Disney studio because of the prestige theoretically mm-hmm. in this like same time period. And so just for this, you're like, yeah, like we're, we're just a pack of bros. Like, all like I know him better than the back of my hand and we're here I mean yeah it probably sucked actually in a lot of ways but like that's the, <laughs> I mean, the mystique you think about it yeah. yeah that's the mystique I think though of um, that kind of working environment right then you have to rely on each other you all know how each like what each other thinks is funny um, and you're just constantly like serving up to each other and I just think that's like kind of cool I mean I don't I don't know how much they had to but they definitely had to invent things like yeah this is a this is new cartoons are new and they're creating things or there's a there's a thing they want to do and they don't know how to do it in camera and they have to learn that in that same time frame so there's this excitement of working with your friends excitement of working on a timeline and excitement of working in new must have been interesting at least uh <laughs> Well, they they had some uh, great some things were really in place for them when they sat down to actually put this cartoon to paper. So, um, okay, at this point, Warner Brothers has under contract a giant orchestra. In fact, I, I think they have two or three. They have like one big full thirty-piece orchestra and a, a couple smaller ones that are do- involved in certain other projects. So, the production team on this cartoon was able to get that recorded and have access to that orchestra for no part of their budget. So that's like a big thing for them. So that might've inspired them to like take this up because they're like, holy shit, we can do this 
for real and not just have a couple instruments tooting around trying to do like the ring cycle like it just wouldn't be possible also on under contract if the studio for warner brothers were two of the ballet dancers who were in what's the name of the fantasia short with the hippo and the alligator what a great question i should it's like Dan- all, dance of the hours. hours yeah 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 so two of the dancers who are references for that were available at warner brothers so some of the little shots like i think Bugs, I don't know the ballet term for it. But when he, I think when he jumps into Elmer's arms. Oh, is it a fish dive, I think? It's something, yeah. Like, <laughs> that's a real reference from one of those dancers, which is cool. That, yeah, I had never thought about that before. Mm-hmm. And I just, I was just like, I guess these guys must have been really into, like, ballet or something. Like, it just never occurred to me once that it's like, of course they went out and they, like, actually studied this. Or they met up with people at the Warner Brothers studio who were doing this and, like, did studies and didn't just have, like, a perfect photographic memory of what ballet moves looked like. Yeah, they were, Chuck Jones was really proud of that specific shot. And he shouts out the animator who worked on that, those poses, Ken Harris is the guy who did that specific shot. Um, so I, I think they were just feeling really good about themselves by having like a little more, yeah, just that that extra like classy flavor. I, I think um, you, you can tell Chuck Jones really likes opera. Would, okay, I made a list of, of some of the shorts. There's little bits in Long Haired Hair, Baton Bunny, Rabbitsville. Those are all like opera inspired shorts. And then there's the one Michael Matisse the one Michael Maltese wrote, uh, <laughs> this is kind of a dark one because it was made during um, like World War II, Hair Meets Hair, which is basically this plot. It's like bugs running from uh, basically a, a Nazi officer in the same oh, kind right. of way. Yeah. Do you remember that one? Yes. And it, they do have a little bit of like the opera, the same like yeah. Viking-y. He's doing the little across They're sneaking by each other like one at a time, like one goes and then the other goes like. Yeah, this is categorized. It came out in uh, 45, so it's like one of the anti-Nazi Merry Melodies. But like, honestly, I looked it up. This is right before Victory Day in Europe. So like the Third Reich is about to fall. So they're kind of jumping on the bandwagon a little late. Maybe they could have like been doing their <laughs> wow. anti-Nazi propaganda How embarrassing. a few years earlier. But that's fine. Um, but anyway, like I never put those pieces together either other than watching, you know, this last week some some little like historians talk about this stuff and being like, oh, the pieces were all kind of building up and then the timing was just right to, to pull the trigger on this one. I guess, that's, isn't that how all great art is made? Yeah, it's just timing, right? Yeah. Which is like, I and think practice. that's nice to know. Yeah. But um, bum No follow-up. <laughs> just... <laughs> I get, like, I don't have answers to this, so I don't, but I just, like, I'm a little bit, like, marveling at, so this is a classic, and I guess when it came out, it it didn't get a lot of traction, what's Opera Doc specifically, but just the fact that we all regard it as a classic now is still kind of wild to me, because, like, what? Like, I didn't, yes, we all know about opera, but, like, I don't know about any of these, like, particular references, and, like, even as a kid, I was like, this is, like, one of the standout. Like, I just knew that mm-hmm. inherently, and I think it might literally be on the strength of the design and, like, the color work alone, which is really strong, mm-hmm. but, I, like, 
I think it kicks ass basically that somebody was just like, God, I like opera is great. Like it would be so funny and fun if we just like did a whole thing with like really specific, well thought out references to opera and our silly characters, these like dumb idiot characters will like dance around just like whatever. And then it's going to go on to become like a timeless classic. Yeah. I have a lot of admiration for that, I guess. So it's like, I don't, it's uh, possibly a valueless statement. Maybe it's like, it reminds me of when we had um, Julian Glander on recently to talk about Fantastic Planet. And he made this really interesting point about it basically, like feeling like a movie that anybody could make. And it's just like so bizarre. And like, it doesn't have what you would just classify as commercial, like broad appeal. Mm -hmm. And he was just like, this is awesome. Like, this is what I want people to be able to do and like have access. So it's like making weird ideas. And I kind of feel like this is the same. It doesn't have a lot in common with Fantastic Planet, but it's like only these people would make this thing. Like it cannot have been made by somebody else. And it's utterly bizarre on paper. Uh, you know, apropos of nothing, like, I don't think any person would be like, yes, like, fund it. Yeah, this pitch uh, <laughs> just doesn't make sense. Uh, but I think it's really cool that it is hailed as a classic, even to this day, thousands and thousands of years later. <laughs> <laughs> oh, by the way, <laughs> this is the future. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I, I did not, I would not have assumed that just because I'm like, you make a thing, you have a funny idea, you just make a thing. But I would never would have assumed that um, people working on it, like, honestly had a love of opera. I just would have assumed it was, uh, it's in the zeitgeist, so let's just make fun of it mm-hmm. type of thing. Yeah. But, um, so it's really cool to hear. But also, like you were saying, that in this time, in this moment with these this group of people is when it could get made. And I think that a thing that I did not uh, appreciate as much until I watched it again in a, in an older age that I am now is the, you know, 40 seconds in that big shadow of the, um, who turns out to <laughs> be Elmer Fudd. Yeah. But it is like, it reminds me of old video games. It's like limited palette. There's like three colors on screen mm-hmm. and the whole thing is like that. And, it shows um, when <laughs> when he finds out that Bugs was the the Valkyrie Brunhilda, he just goes red and he says, "I'll kill the rabbit." And like all of those very graphic things, I feel like I didn't I I I, I didn't notice when I was first watching it as a kid, and and, and every time I've watched it since. And <laughs> not to get in too much of a oh, cartoons used to be better type of thing, but <laughs> but they did. <laughs> I feel like I have not seen that in anything contemporary playing with color, playing with lighting and, um, and even like the perspective that they do with these, uh, with these camera angles. And it was very refreshing to see it and notice it. Um, which, you know, I, I, I can look at this background and I can say, yeah, that looks old. That looks like it's from, you know, that's also what the ant and the aardvark looked like the old Mm -hmm. UPA, I believe cartoon, uh, you know, and then that's what uh, Dexter's lab looked like, and everybody went bananas over Dexter's lab backgrounds. So meanwhile, he was, you know, just uh, referencing this style as well. And uh, and I can I can say that it looks old. It looks looks like something that my grandma would have like on her wall. But the desire and ability to even be able to do that 
again, I, I don't know how much I honestly believe what the thing I'm about to say is. It feels like it is missing from from contemporary works, mm. even in, in live action as well. I'm just going to keep saying over and over again, it was beautiful. It was beautiful in ways that weren't... It looked so real. It was like, wow, they really made a lot of decisions here. And those decisions were very surprising. Um, and they feel like decisions that got made... How long ago was 1957? Thousands of years ago? Thousands, yeah. Oh, yeah they got least. made so long ago, and <laughs> then it feels like we stopped having the desire to to make those decisions again. Uh, which is kind of a bummer thing to say, hmm. I guess. But, I do um, kind of agree with you, though. And I'm not an expert with like what's on TV, like kids' cartoons in this day and age. Like I know some here and there, but it's... Especially with everything being on streaming, and I don't like have a chance to watch that much stuff anyway but just in, in broad strokes it's like the color consistency is very pervasive in a lot of cartoons where you can look at a screenshot from a bunch of different episodes of the same show and the characters are always the same color mm-hmm. and like i think for a lot of the time they're doing it for budget reasons but like there's just a lot of control over stuff like that mm. now um but also like it's sort of a great pivot I think, into talking about Maurice Noble. Sure. Because, dare I say, I feel like he was actually too sophisticated for a child's mind because I used to think that these backgrounds were ugly when I was a child. Uh, I'm not afraid to say that. I'll admit. Yeah, totally. I was, yeah, the colors were like, they're garish. I didn't say that because I didn't know that word as when I was a baby. But I was like, ah, no. And now I'm obsessed with them. And I think they're the best thing ever. And Maurice Noble's art book is my favorite art book. Ira has it here out on the table. Hold it up for the camera (laughs) for the listeners. No, we do not, no. I do believe it's out of print, but honestly, just shell out for it. It kicks ass. It's really good. And it just basically goes over all of his design sensibilities mm-hmm. and, like, his process. So it's genuinely very helpful. I would even say, like, if you're trying to make an animated short, just, like, whoever out there, like, haven't done it before. Mm-hmm. Like, surprisingly, this seems like a really perfect way to do it because it just tells you, like, how to consider, like, color contrast and, like, designing mm-hmm. your characters and how they're going to live on the backgrounds and all of this stuff. Uh, and he just does the craziest stuff with colors that even if we were pushing color today more. Fat horse. That's true. There's a, Sorry. a lot of large horses. Now, pause the show. We need to talk about the fat horse um, icon. But like, I, he was just in a league of his own. Like him and Mary Blair are the two like mid-century mm, yeah. artists in animation studios that were amazing with color and would just be like everything is like neon green and hot pink and just like and fuck you if you don't like it basically and it's awesome and they're like when you mentioned elmer fudd turns bright red when he gets really upset and this like also his like magic helmet like glows bright yellow and it's just like why is this like there's no like okay make sure that we have the helmet do that because that's how you know it's magic is happening or whatever like it's not that it's just like it Mm -hmm. has to do with the emotion of the moment and stuff like that is constantly happening he's like marching up to this castle or whatever and it's all these like vivid color i don't have it in front of me too because i can't remember what the transition is but it's like yellow and red or whatever and then like he steps down a little bit he's in the exact same set but the color palette has completely shifted and like you just don't really think about it Mm -hmm. because for some reason he just knew exactly what he was doing and it looks awesome yeah it's almost like there's three acts or or something like they're they're following to you know the one person not to jump we'll go back to noble in a second but 
the unnamed person that is gets no credit for any of this is whoever took Wagner's Ring Cycle, you know, 14 or 16, I don't know how many hours. It's extremely long to do this whole narrative and all these like uh, all these segments and all these different God stories and like murder and death and everything and reduce it down to six minutes of like the hits, like the main beats that you need. Who the hell did that? That's like... That's a great question. You know, the editing on that carries so much of this and keeps the story flowing. Like, it's all hanging on the structure of the music. Which, which when I was young, I just thought it was like a a pastiche of like different, like samples of famous songs. I didn't realize it was all Wagner. And it's basically that that piece, that work edited way down, uh, which was really interesting yeah i had no idea but you you would think so maurice noble i think and chuck jones fans of the opera and just like art in general i think are they must be like playing off some of that structure i would think you know when building the the kind of storyboard so the the story goes michael maltese does the first he writes the first draft does some rough thumbnails he passes these thumbs along to ernie norbley who was working it Warner Brothers at the time. And um, Maurice Noble just comes out and says his work was too straight, which is a very like 50s thing to say about stuff. It's like that it's like too straight. It's like, not sure what you You're mean. Like, what exactly does that mean, that. Maurice? <laughs> so, so Ernie is removed from the project. I don't know if it's because Maurice Noble is like, I'll take it from here. Or just Ernie went back to Disney or whatever. But Maurice just throws out all of that work and just starts from scratch. But you get the two straight because when you look at Maurice Noble, I mean, there's clearly like some sort of like allegiance to a grid at times, but it's so wonky and like German expressionistic. There's a uh, lot of straight lines in there, but none of them are going the direction that you would think. Right. <laughs> it's forcing you to like, it's telling your eye where to where to go, really, like in terms of where the characters are placed. And he points out this this is like very brilliant. I think Chuck Jones says this. So when when describing how him and Maurice planned these backgrounds, they would draw them, you know, as a thumbnail storyboard. So it's like, okay, Bugs is going from position A to B. He's doing these things. Elmer comes in. This is happening. And they would stage the the action. And then Maurice would, would design the background kind of where the characters land in certain poses or where they're going to go. And when you look at it, you can kind of see that because there's moments where things just time up just right, where Bugs like lands in a pose and he's perfectly arched on like a third of the screen. You're like, holy shit, that's why this feels so good. It, it all comes together like a puzzle as if it was like built in reverse or something. Yeah, um, I feel like they're very meticulous about the layouts. Yeah. Like they would have insanely detailed layout drawings and then like have the animators work on top of that, which I feel like is also something that we don't do anymore. I saw some... I don't know, internet meme. I don't know. It's a random tweet about this the other day, sourceless, um, that was basically just lamenting the fact that we're losing layout as a process in animation these days. Um, partially, I guess, because of the jump to 3D animation. It's so appealing because people can just like futz with the, the camera angles and the everything like as much as they want to the last possible minute. And back in the day on like Disney movies and Looney Tunes stuff like that, it was like this agonizing process because like I have to physically make this. Right. And it has to be we need to know in advance that it's good. And like, you know, now somebody can be looking over your shoulder being like, what if it was completely different from the way it is now? And you can just change that. And it kind of just blows up an entire art form that I think was important. (laughs) 
for animation. But what do I know? <laughs> I'm just an amateur. Well, Eric, actually, to this guy, you're you're sort of a good guest for this specific topic of um, sort of, you know. You're, You're the okay. One hundred percent perfect guess for the question I'm about to <laughs> uh, pose for you. So you draw comics. Eric draws. Uh, he has a really great uh, kid-friendly adventure fantasy story called Rutabaga, which is full of great, clear, simple, timeless gags. Flat hand-drawn illustration. But Eric also works in video games. Uh, Skylanders, ever heard of it? I don't know what he did on that. I just know that's like in his credit somewhere. But um, I never worked on Skylanders. What are you talking about? In terms of, but but now you're more like an art director. So I imagine some, you're, maybe you're framing shots or doing things, but in, in 3D modeled spaces, like, and you probably in a given day, you can jump back and forth between these two projects because you like work during the day at a video game company and then maybe rush home to draw some comics. Like, I don't know. How do you, I don't know what my question is other than I think you kind of do both of these things. How is that? How do you find that? (laughs) Um, How do you find things? How's it hanging? It's pretty easy because I'm a genius, but... um, We'll edit that. Okay, hang up. Just hang up. (laughs) We're done here. So uh, my current role is narrative director. So that is a lot of... um, what that means is creating uh, narratives for things, <laughs> which is, uh, you know, we have a lot of outfits and customizations and different things that you can uh, equip in the game. So what is this outfit? What is it called? What is its narrative? What is its history? Why is it? What should it be referencing? A lot of that stuff comes from me working with the team, as well as writing the stories uh, and all that stuff. But there's this interesting thing that I think that comes from uh, these two aspects of my life, which is when you're making a interactive video game, like the one that I'm working on now, Knockout City, uh, that isn't like a, um, like a Resident Evil single camera or, or, or an adventure game or something like that. One, you don't really, we don't really have this place to storytell narrative that isn't just here's is what the map this is run over there to do this run over there to do this so getting character and things into the game i still like storyboard all the time at work even mm. though we don't really have the ability to show you visuals for i don't know if that really makes any sense unless hmm. i loaded the game up now and showed it to you but we have this thing it's a it's a podcast called These Space Dispatches. Every single season, we do ten episodes of it, and it's a fully voice and acted and sound affected out um, sound affected. I'm an artist. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't need to know that epi- stuff. A ten episode podcast, and when you're working in a audio medium like that, you're still trying to tell a story, and you know that a person is going to walk over here and they're going to do this, and you know you need them to hit this certain beat at this certain time and just coming from all of this visual stuff that i have i find it useful to still like storyboard out what an audio track is going to be doing Mm. yeah that's really interesting and fun and there's because of because of that and because of my interest in these uh, very like um 
graphic, uh, poetic even, like uses of color and line that these older cartoons did, there's a, there is still room for that in other mediums, even if you don't actually see it. If you, <laughs> if you have it in your heart when you're yeah, doing yeah. it, mm-hmm. it will come out. And I did not have it in my heart for a very long time. I just, all I wanted to do was read Jimmy Corrigan, which is emotionless. Everything is at an arm's distance comics that I thought were hilarious and amazing. Mm. And then I learned about emotion. <laughs> and I was like, oh, <laughs> this is so much more interesting. And um, I lost my train of thought because that was really sad to learn that I, I didn't care about emotion for like 30 years of my life. So never mind. But I, I feel like it's happens to the best. No, of I feel it. like you're I, I think it's like you don't know how to acknowledge that you're engaging with it because like Chris Ware's Billy Corrigan have you ever seen that comics it's like about sad kids but it's very graphical <laughs> and flat um, picture something sad and now double it it's there's no squash and stretch it. to any of it so it's, it's very just I'm done shapes <laughs> nope <laughs> but but it is it does have a tone right and you're engaging yeah. with that tone emotionally so it's more that it, it kind of like rides it like an ambient music track or something uh, yeah. So maybe it's a more vibe that. comic. What's that? You know, vibe films. Yeah. Where you don't <laughs> really thing. have to be paying. Yeah. You don't really have to be paying attention. It's more like the flavor of it. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. it's that it just sort of yeah. like puts you in a, a sauna of feeling. And then you just when you're done with it, you get out. Um, right. But I feel like. Looney, <laughs> and then and when you go to storyboard, I feel like that's more because you want to track the emotional arc of something because you have to engage with the passage of time more because you can say like. Like a chill wave piece of art doesn't exist out of time. Like there's no passage of time in this neon sunset with a DeLorean passing through L.A. in like <laughs> neo futuristic settings like that's To me, that's what vibe is like. Time doesn't really pass in the same way. But when you're telling a story, you need like the different color tones or whatever, because mm-hmm. th- that's the re- that's the point of the piece. Well, I mean, I think like what it really comes down to is like planning, like some kind of element of planning. It doesn't necessarily have to be like improvised art is a thing and can be good. It's just like if I'm making something with intent to try to evoke a certain reaction or convey a certain idea, it's very helpful at mm-hmm. minimum to spell it out to myself in some way and yeah. think through it. Because that even made me think like I really like this – podcast this like improvised comedy podcast called mission is x that's like over now i think oh, yeah. like, really cool i love mission is x i think it's so funny absolutely love it and uh and it's really well done and it's like ostensibly improvised but they sit down and they plan through a lot of it beforehand so right. like as they're acting it out they're improvising stuff to each other there's like a lot of room for ad-libbing and joking in unexpected ways but they have a guest on for every episode and they know like who are you going to be in our universe that we've created? Mm-hmm. What's the scenario going to be in which we meet? And maybe like what's it, some character stuff that we could do? Because it has this overarching narrative that goes through the whole thing. And basically it's like we're, we're improv comedians. We're good at that. But this is a story. So we are going to do some planning. So right. that we don't end up because if it's you going don't somewhere, yeah, right. you might yeah. go to an improv show and it's terrible and you go to an improv show at the same place the next night, whatever. It's really funny. It's like you don't know what you're going to get. But since they want it to have a cohesive narrative, they have to plan it out. I don't know that anyone there is storyboarding it. Mm-hmm. But if I was doing I mean, that it makes sense. Like, that's how we know how to tell stories. Like, that's what we've always done. 
I assume you and I are exactly the same, <laughs> have all of this in common. Uh, you know, but I storyboard I, a lot I, for work, so it does. It just makes sense to me to view stories through that lens. Sometimes it can be like, this is exactly what I want. And sometimes it can be dance steps where this is where I want to be at this point yeah. in the song. But how did I get there? What did my what did my little body do while I was getting there? I don't know. But at least I knew I, I know I want to be here. And I want it to be, you know, going back into color. And I want it to be red. And I want the background to be in this perspective. And I want there to be this and that. And there's a there's also the the step of having the confidence to pursue that idea, whether you're like the director or the animator of a scene, to like believe in it enough where you'll stand up for it. Because um, in some of this, you know, audio commentary, Maurice Noble points out specifically the scene where Elmer turns red. He went to the paint department. He's like this all red through here. And they're like, that isn't how it worked. That's not going to look good. And he's like, no, I have a vision for it. Like he could have just backed down and been like, no, you're right. You're the pros. Like you, you know what to do, do it, which could be the case half the time. But in this case, the fact that he like stands up for having this shift in the tone of the story at this exact moment and knowing that the story needs it and believing that he can say it and stand up for it. I, I think that's a big thing that makes certain pieces like this one stand out, you know, as opposed to like your run of the mill Roadrunner cartoon, which doesn't have a moment that somebody needs to stand up for like that. Right. Yeah, I've never seen the Roadrunner turn red. No, it's never, never. happened. If, Maybe. I don't at know. best, he's like almost like a bluish red. At best. <laughs> Oh, mighty warrior of great fighting stock, might I inquire to ask him, what's up, Doc? I'm going to kill the wabbit. Oh, mighty hunter, twill be quite a task. How will you do it? Might I inquire to ask? That red moment also happens right before i believe my no right before yeah right after my favorite part in the whole thing Mm. which also shows restraint and this understanding of what exactly they wanted to do which is when bugs pulls the hat down and runs away (laughs) and there's no sound effects except this drum yeah and then you just see his dress just floating in the air. <laughs> that is, and you know the exactly best what happened. Part. He ran, and then you see the, sh- the little silhouette of him just like, like, Booking it. like cheekily running away, <laughs> like, oh, ain't I a stinker running away? And there's just no sound except for that drums. Mm-hmm. That is, I- I'm very curious to know, and maybe you have this already uh, written down in, in your notes there, Ira. Was that in the storyboard, or did that come from listening to the music after it was put together? And it's like, oh, there's this whole, like, drum part here. Yeah, I I don't know. I'd I'd love to know. Well, when you hear Chuck Jones talk about, um, he's so gentle. Like, he's, um, you know, Disney. We talk about Disney and, like, all all these, like, big figures that loom so, you know, produced by, like, their names at the top of the thing. Chuck Jones is, like, one of the quiet-spoken, like, geniuses. Probably because he has no feature film or any of this. But he is so confident in his characters and his editing choices like you can watch this happen that when we do that marathon caitlin where we watch every episode of looney tunes oh you're in you're joining me but you can see um 
you can see a shift between the, the body language being massive, his face is like squash and stretch and arms go everywhere. By the time you get to the mid-50s, faces are doing like ding, I like little hand, like, or... Oh, the crinkly little mouth. And like, right, exactly. The, like, <laughs> child-like mouth, mouth yeah, or, like, like, the dropping eyelid. Yeah, that it gets a little weird almost, actually. It gets a little too childlike No, it's, like, later. gross, but I, I love it because you immediately yeah. are like, I know who did that. But that's the brilliance of he, he... People know these characters so well. Chuck Jones knows they know them. He can give you a touch of a line, and it sells it. And he can also edit around the action. So you just need to see the dress. You just need to see Bugs at the last moment before he dips behind the horizon as his shadow plays on that edge. Like, those are the choices you just, you can't make unless you're a Chuck Jones. To not show anybody most of the thing. That's specifically what I was thinking of when I was talking about these being, like, shit posts. Like, because I know he's done the, like, character runs away and it's literally just a hard cut from them being there to them being gone and a little dissipating trail of smoke. Mm -hmm. And, like, that's, you never see that in a Disney no production it's too cartoony and it's too like i think what's really nice about looney tunes is really they were like anything can happen like don't even think about it like we are gods in this universe and i can make whatever i want to happen happen that's why duck amuck is such a good episode mm-hmm. because it's like an animator torturing right daffy like in his cartoon world <laughs> mm-hmm. um basically i just like the the comedic timing of that feels really modern, really fresh, super funny. And again, something that only happens when you are really plugged into the thing you're doing. Mm -hmm. It's like, we're all like working in this small group and we're like bros riding our horrible deadlines. And like, you know, it would be so stupid. Like, I I have no idea if this is what happened or not, but I can imagine them being at the studio like three in the morning being like, you know, it'd be really funny. Like if he just was like, and then we, we spend like a meticulous amount of frames on this piece of clothing, like, dissipating yeah. as Bugs is just, like, escaping. Like, wouldn't that be hilarious? Like, that's the kind of energy it feels like to me when I'm animating something and I'm trying to make it stupid. At Discord, we do a lot of that, which I really appreciate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, our marketing is basically, like, make it weird or funny or really dumb, um, which is kind of, like, I'm really good at that. <laughs> but, like, that's the kind <laughs> of energy where I just sort of make a snap decision halfway through it because I'm like, God, that'd be fucking hilarious. And then, like... Yeah hopefully most of the time it actually like makes it into the finished thing. Yeah. An element of chaos like makes it kind of like feel alive. Like whatever makes you laugh obnoxiously and probably makes other people laugh obnoxiously. Like that's the stuff you want to try to get into it to get into the finished thing. I think to uh, add fuel to your shit post fire. Please do. Finally. um, (laughs) (laughs) Is when you say it feels modern. I agree, but I do not mean to what its contemporaries would be nowadays. Like, if they were making these cartoons now, because, again, I'm being very careful not to say cartoons used to be better, but it feels modern to the people who make things on the internet to do something like that, to have the dress float, to have a guy turn red. It, It feels modern to people who would be considered, I guess, amateur. Hmm. Uh, similar to Mission to Zix, one of my favorite YouTubers uh, is uh, Joel Haver. Um, he does a bunch of animations using this weird like AI animation process that's very strange, but then he also does live action things. And in the middle of his sketches, his friends will break and they'll laugh 
and he'll leave it in and just cut after they start laughing and then they'll just do the scene again and it feels so unique you know it's a joel haver thing when he does that Mm. or he'll end a sketch when they finally break it's like we did the whole sketch and then you finally broke and now i'm gonna end it and it's almost like letting me the audience know like "Eh, that's all it's all laughs it's all giggles here don't worry about it but i could say that that is extremely modern but he has no contemporaries in the professional world Mm -hmm. that are doing anything like that same thing with this like these things in this animation the things in in gag cartoons from the time things that are kind of being rediscovered um just because people are are making things i don't imagine people are watching old looney tunes and going ah i'm i'm I, i'm i have become inspired but you get enough people making things they're going to redo what has already been done so it's uh uh yeah that 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 modernity feels like it comes from uh, the youth i guess the tiktoks and things like that that are doing the really surprising things with media and with their cameras that they have on them just like this feels like it's doing really surprising things because like i said the cartoon before this was a detective cartoon that was making fun of uh, a parody of an old detective thing with peter laurie uh the joke is is that there's this dehydrated acme dehydrated woman and they put water <laughs> in it, he pours it out and then P- now peter laurie has a date now that doesn't feel very after- modern <laughs> <laughs> and then the one after this is a speedy gonzalez cartoon where he is uh getting his drunk cousins i think to stop fighting cats it's like okay both of those feel kind of like <laughs> yeah i get it those are those are gags those are those are cartoons mm-hmm. this thing this i mean this is why we're talking about it this thing stands alone on its own you say that it wasn't really it doesn't have the popularity or at least the recognition that it has now. Well, the way the story goes is it it was released to no fanfare, no awards, no nominations or anything. And then just sort of like a lot of things through rerun and repetition of like television years later, people realized it's people were like, Oh my God, this thing's the, he turns red. I've never seen that. (laughs) I love Faulkner. I'm a huge (laughs) fan of the ring cycle. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I I think it's That's wild. That's wild to think about. And I think the production of this, you know, the fact that they spent a couple extra weeks, maybe it earned itself a little more airtime also than like some of the lesser run of the mill Looney Tunes. So I think that could probably you know, exposure huh. goes a long way. Because it's not like this team wasn't, like we were saying, the team that's been through a lot, the cycle a lot of times, you know. So I, I think it, it's kind of that, just that, you know, again, perfect timing. So I, I've got a couple more good Chuck Jones quotes. You want to hear some? No, of course. Thank you for asking. Sure. I will. You can. You can. You can take your headphones off. I want to hear. I'll step away. <laughs> <laughs> I don't take Caitlin's instant reaction to everything I say too personally. You shouldn't, because it's always negative. That it's a called a gag, Ira. Look it up. I have a book about. I'm sorry, gags. we'll just, get into it later. This is so um, lame. Please go on. <laughs> okay, so these are some good Chuck Jones quotes. Chuck Jones says. Bugs is the only character who's a comic hero. The rest are comic losers. Like, that is true. Owned. Kind of rude, but... <laughs> well, <laughs> Good thing they can't read. That's why this one was a classic, because at the end, Bugs loses. Yeah. And he's like, what'd you expect? But it's also that thing, mm-hmm. you know, this is that kind of the modern-ish feeling, is Bugs knows he's in an opera. Because yeah. he's like, 
You know how in an opera, they die at the end. That's me doing it right now for you because we're friends and I, I know you love this shit. And it's like, oh, were you expecting something different? Like, I know you've seen a million Bugs Bunny yeah. cartoons and how it doesn't end this way most of the time. Like That, that kind of shorthand of like, we get it is always going to feel modern, like, you know. Yeah. Uh, okay, so... Con- that's actually really funny. That that just uh, That's exactly what I was describing with the Joel Haver breaking at the end. Bugs is in it 100% until the end when he's just like... <laughs> Yeah. yeah, that was funny, wasn't it? Yeah. It's like, I think when right. entertainment becomes self-aware, we're all like, oh, yeah, like they're just like us. Like the people who made this yeah, yeah. were from a long time ago, but they were very similar to people. Like right. all people are kind mm-hmm. of the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. OK. Chuck Jones also says this. I feel like this is quite beautiful and kind of like summarizes the magic of animation. Animation is not a series of still drawings, but a flurry of drawings that accomplish an effect. It's really nice because it also like you could change some of the words out and it's like it's not about like a beautiful image. It's about a chaotic nightmare process of people just drawing slight variations of a thing forever. And then you look at it and it's gone in a flash. That's so true. The slowest flurry and then just like fleeting and in a minute Mm -hmm. and you're like, I promise you, I worked really hard on that. And it took hours and hours and hours of my life. Yeah. Like tragic and please come back. Where are you going? (laughs) Okay, and now he gets into, I mean, he's always so good at just talking about character stuff. He's like the guy to listen to when you're trying to sort out character shit for a story. So he gets into, and we get to, we arrive at um, Fat Horse pretty soon here in the conversation. All, <laughs> he says, all creatures are identified by the way they move, not what they look like. Motion is the essence of animation. And like, I feel like Looney Tunes is so that, like you can feel the weight. It's all about the weight of characters what they he says things like, you know, somebody running from something is different than somebody running towards something. Like all these little variations in motivation change how something is drawn because he's always looking for that that specific that evokes life. It's like, you know, the Disney <laughs> the 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 uh the illusion of life. It is all the specificity <laughs> of like what makes Pinocchio Pinocchio or what makes bugs be the bugs. And it's it's always motion and how they would react to a situation um so good job chucks thanks for thanks for that oh i Um, like how they have very different takes on it though where dizzy motion is very like make it feel real like make me feel like this is a real character and chuck jones is like you can tell daffy's unhinged because of the way he hops around really rapidly yeah or like it's like expressionistic or like this, this horse is tremendously fat but he just like bounces like he's just like a big balloon horse basically like yeah. galloping down the way and like that is just funny whereas like disney wouldn't do stuff like that generally speaking no they wouldn't kind of loosen up in that way and i'm one of the animators <laughs> so he, he says that the design of that horse was a big challenge. It's the fattest character to that point that ever existed in a Looney Tunes cartoon. And he, <laughs> he got the style from the beauty and grace of watching fat people ice skate, as he says. Wow. Which um, he, he says specifically the fattest character. This is Chuck Jones saying this. The fattest character they ever had to animate was the horse in What's Up, Doc? One of the things I referenced was watching fat people ice skate. When they ice skate, it's beautiful to watch. Um, Pretty like straightforward statement, but I think that speaks to like kind of the nice thing about being an artist is you learn to just appreciate anything because anything could be 
a tool or a, a thing you could use for the work you're doing, which I feel like is such a great way to like look at the world. Like nothing is your enemy. Nothing is like an antagonist against you. It's like this could this person ice skating could be fuel for like the greatest thing you might ever make. The fattest horse that ever been animated. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that just like a really nice way to like look at the world? But I do find it a little per- like perplexing, especially to them. Like, what are you doing? Just like hanging out at ice rinks and just like <laughs> ogling the people there, like looking but, I mean, for motion. But also, reference. that's what I, we do that a lot as artists. I feel like if you go out and do reference, how many in the accounts real world, do you so, follow like, that are just models, like yeah, half stripped down, like in poses? It I, just makes you look yeah. in the mirror a little bit, I guess, and be like, "Are we okay?" Um, yeah, but I do think that's a good point, and I love that horse. I that think horse she's is great. beautiful. Or he, I don't know. Does that horse look like, is it in season one of Adventure Time? There's the horse on the hill. I'm yes, sure but they, don't look, they do not look the same. I recently watched that oh, episode. Okay. <laughs> Never mind. That's it a, is a fat horse, but it uh, does not rival the Looney Tunes horse. Okay. As far as I know, that's a Kate Beaton reference. Right. Okay. Yes. I, yeah. I feel like that could be. It's very round, like perfectly round down. in that yeah. kind of like rubber hosey sort of way. That's true. Like perfectly round head. Just the idea of the presence of a big horse, maybe. she. <laughs> I think there should be more large horses in media. Oh, yeah. And that, so. Hidalgo should be rebooted with all. Stay tuned for, yeah, it's like Clifford the Big Red Dog, but it's about a horse. I could do this. Okay, we'll talk about this after. And this is the, 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 uh, the, the wellspring of this idea. Yeah, my graphic novel is coming out soon. <laughs> Giant just... horses. <laughs> God, that sounds actually a, a book of all horses next to a book of all bicycles would be the, the most <laughs> challenging thing to ever have to draw. That, way, that sounds violent. Two of my favorite things. Well, I don't, horses are fine. Anyway, let's <laughs> let's move on. All right. I have. I think I read all my quotes. Oh, no, I have one more quote that kind of ties the horse into humanity a little bit. <laughs> Chuck Jones says, humanizing animals is easier than designing humans. Humans are very particular in their movements. They're individuals. Animals are more generalized in their motion amongst themselves, which makes a lot of sense. And also made me think of like, when we've talked about rotoscoping, sometimes it captures personality and and human character a little better because it's so based on literal movements. Whereas like, oh, I get this. Like when you see a human in a Looney Tunes character, they're kind of forgettable or they're not, remarkable in a way like some uh, some a disney human character might be when i would actually say go a step further and just point out the obvious the thing we just somehow haven't talked about at all which is like a lot of the human representation of looney tunes is very poor and like racist and bad sure uh and not like super good but i think it like it's from the same thing we've talked about this a little bit before on the show in various types where it's like if you're working in cartoons especially in this time period you're using a lot of stereotypes and like for the animal thing it doesn't matter because it's not really like based off of anything real it's like our conceit of a rabbit character and like Oh, rabbits are like fast and quick, and like so he'd be like wily and all of this stuff. And mm. then, but then when you do that with people, it mm. kind of sucks in the long term. <laughs> uh, so I think that is somewhat of a problem too. Where like with Elmer Fudd, I guess it's not as huge of a deal because he's basically just like this guy's a doofus, mm-hmm. and that's a stereotype that we can all be like, haha. And also, it's nice when he gets a win every now and then, even if he is real sad about it. But it, it's harder to make those characters memorable, I think, or, like, more palatable in a universal way because they just don't age well. Yeah. 
there is an interesting thing though that uh something i hadn't thought about until much later in my life that bugs bunny from what i understand is based on groucho right that's what i've heard that's what i've heard as well I believe so you. they have this rabbit character based on a human and then he's more human than all of us. <laughs> and then um, he acts like an actor who already exists, slowly becomes himself, becomes Bugs Bunny, but also um, I think slowly moves away from being a bunny. Yeah, that, yeah, becomes, that's definitely accurate. Becomes a bugs. character. He's just Bugs, yeah. Um, Daffy Duck, in my opinion, slowly moved away from being Daffy Duck and just turned into an asshole. <laughs> right. Who who was mad? Became more Daffy Duck than mm. could ever yeah. be conceived. The, I I personally like the Daffier Duck, the one that goes woo woo and bounces around and and does all this weird yeah. stuff. But I also just like with the music, how I didn't realize that the music was contemporary. I can just imagine watching a Bugs cartoon back in the day and my dad coming up and being like that's just they just stole groucho and then walking away and dismissing it and i'm like i don't know yeah. who that is <laughs> right right well that's very interesting too just to consider that like we all saw this way after the fact that it was pro- originally produced and just how many references are lost mm-hmm. there's no direct point to that or like a conversation starter really i just like i find that kind of unnerving sometimes when i'm watching stuff like this and i'm like this character could easily be a take on some modern thing or, you know, there's like movies nowadays like Shrek or whatever that have like very like, ah, like that's just like current celebrity. And, you know, five years later, it's like very out of date. Mm-hmm. Uh, who knows what was going on? Somebody knows. But there's a, probably a lot of that going on and stuff like this, especially because they were being so like savvy and funny yeah. and trying to make right. current audiences laugh. Uh, and that I would just be like, like, I don't know who Foghorn Leghorn's supposed to be. If he is, like, if he's based on anybody, but he could be. And maybe that's what made him extra funny to people at the time. Like, I right. just don't he probably, know. He probably is. Yeah. They probably didn't invent this character out of nothing. Yeah. We just they don't have the, the savvy to know what's up. Mm-hmm. Oh, thought. I was just going to shout out like, um, the, the voice acting, because these are both guys that came from old timey radio from the twenties and then sort of like ended up here because these were the career options and radio was kind of done. <laughs> so you have like Mel Blanc or Blank? B-L-A. I guess it's I Blanc. I don't know. But yeah, I've always yeah. said Blank and then yeah. I don't know. Okay. Mel. Hey, Mel. Uh, so Mel is Bugs. <laughs> and then I, I believe this is Arthur Q. Bryan. This is his last Elmer Fudd. I don't know if he passed mm. away or this was just the last Elmer Fudd cartoon, which doesn't seem like. No, he definitely passed away in Elmer because yeah. I was exploring the Elmer Fudd Wikipedia page mm-hmm. and he's been played by a lot of people, which yeah. obviously makes sense when you think that character's shown up in like modern time stuff for a long time. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I want to say he passed away in like 1960. Okay, that makes sense because they kind of, uh, the commentary I was listening to, they give him a little extra credit as this is his like, you know, master performance of Thank Elmer Thank you for Fudd. all you've done. Yeah. Which, which is cool. But the, the, that kind of idea of um, like the inspiration, like we can say everything is rooted in some sort of inspiration, every idea, every character design, every plot point or every gag. But it's like what you do with it, like how far you take it. Like in Shrek's case, it's like we want you to know our reference point because the joke yeah. is that we're making a reference. Whereas I feel like the more artistic approach is to like blend it like paint 
and find the new color. <laughs> Spoken like a true artist. Well, you know what? Mm-hmm. So, okay, I have this note. This is going to be a thing that should probably be edited out. Um, I was reading about musical theory a little bit because I was like going down the, the Wagner hole a little bit. And there's this phrase. It's a German phrase. Klangfarben melody. This is all one word. We are not cutting this out. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's the German term for sound color melody, which when you look it up is described as the breakdown of a melodic structure amidst different instruments, amidst different instruments. And visually it's compared to like pointillism where you like, I want to render a sunset. So I make X amount of red dots and X amount of yellow dots. And when you look at it, it becomes a thing. But if you look close, it's all these pieces. Like, I just love that when two mediums are kind of like compared and actually have like similar points of reference, because that's both the case of like, how do I take the point of origin and kind of dilute it and invent something new with it? These guys have just been in the world of Looney Tunes so long. Daffy is not a duck. He's the iterated so far away. He only exists in this universe now, right? There's no outside reference in a way like they own in the way for young Eric Looney Tunes might as well have invented opera for as far as you knew. <laughs> they invented it and then they parodied it and then they closed the town. That so end. weird that they're all wearing Viking hats like that. What a cute idea on the part of the filmmakers. Yeah. <laughs> Adorable. We're going to talk about the fat horse. I feel like we have to talk about the thing that was on top of the fat horse, which was Bugs Bunny and drag. Yes. Oh yeah. I forgot about that part. Um, <laughs> seared into my brain. Yeah, it's one of those touchstone moments in a in a in a person's life who enjoys mm. cartoons to be like, "What did you think the first time you saw Bugs Bunny in drag?" And then everyone goes, "Oh, that was good. That was good. I liked it." <laughs> <laughs> so, I I I I remembered this, but I and I I knew that something happened, and then when I was seeing it again remembering what was going to happen being like oh right it's the it's the brunhilde bit mm-hmm. i forgot how long it was and i forgot that they had a <laughs> a, a song together Isn't and it, bugs is really making a meal out of it <laughs> yeah. and, and that's the other thing i was watching it and i was like when the hat falls off i was like that wasn't planned was bugs all in yeah, like when was oh, yeah. the natural conclusion? <laughs> yeah. yeah, you think maybe it's going to turn into a gag where he uses it to escape and or one up. There's no evidence of that. Yeah, no, he was right. going to his deathbed being like, oh, by the way, what's up, Doc? <laughs> <laughs> um, the other thing I wanted to say was that um, specifically talking about cartoons and gag cartoons is I was trying to think of what gives me this feeling now. And... Um, there's a couple of things that this particular cartoon gives me that I've talked about before, which is, you know, that artistic, um, like the, the graphicness and the, and the, all those decisions. And I get a lot of that nowadays in, um, non mainstream things, I guess. Hmm. But the closest I can really think of, especially because comedy in movies seems to have really changed a lot. Um, you know, uh, sketch comedy. I mean, that's basically what these are. These are these are sketch comedy bits, in my opinion. Like, mm-hmm. uh, there was, used to be a lot of sketch comedy in the 90s. Um, and I absolutely loved it. And then there, all these cartoons were playing on TV at the same time. So it felt like it was everywhere. And then Airplane was on, t- on uh, uh, Naked Gun. Like, all of these weird gag-based things happening. 
And then it kind of like with scary movie and then uh, not another teen movie and not another superhero movie, all these things, it just slowly turned into this thing that you didn't want to watch because it just wasn't good. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it's still missing, but the closest I can think of is Stephen Chow, who did um, Kung Fu Hustle Mm. and Shaolin Soccer. Mm -hmm. Those are like, I would call those like live action Looney Tunes cartoons. A hundred percent. And they, I mean, they're some of my favorite things in the world. Um, like I've, I've watched as many of his movies as I can, as I can possibly get, even ones that were only fan translated, God of cooking, King of comedy, all of these very Chinese movies. And when he was asked, <laughs> they're like, when are you going to bring those over to America? He's like, those are Chinese movies. You guys aren't going to get the jokes. <laughs> And then there's like me watching this little video I download off the internet being like, I get it. I get it. <laughs> you just but, tweet him like, dear. Hey, I just want you to know. That joke was really funny. <laughs> I liked it. I, I, unless my memory isn't, isn't very good. I'm finding it hard to think of like really contemporary gag based things. And um, maybe the benefit of this is that it's only six minutes long and the benefit of a sketch is that a sketch is only six minutes long Saturday Night Live probably the most like gag based thing that people know of nowadays um, and the far superior Mad TV I know we were all going to say it so let me say it first um, well I think it, it, I, I think I think you're right and I think the rule of thumb as Chuck Jones would say is no, no matter how simple the character is the rules have to be there and the gags have to be true to the character, right? Even mm-hmm. like when Chris Farley does his interview show and he's talking to Paul McCartney and he can't like not be like, wasn't that so cool? Like it's funny because it is true to that character he's being and that's the joke. But if he just, you know, falls over for no reason over and over again because they know the audience laughs at that quickly, that becomes not funny because it's not tied to an action. Right with a reaction right mm-hmm. i think that's all that's why a scary movie five gets shitty because now it's just a list of bits and not like character driven bits it is i, I actually right? think like character driven yeah. stuff is lacking in general in general yeah and also like i'm just gonna sound like any run-of-the-mill like Uh-oh. editorial writer right now but like prestige television has killed the creative industry but i do think there's something to that because it's just like it's all about keeping things going and then also being like very dramatic right. and um i am not caught up on this show but I, I think it's just a general a good illustration of this concept where uh, you had Breaking Bad, and that was very dramatic. And I loved Breaking Bad. I saw all of it. I had a great time. Well, you know, whatever. It's very stressful. But, like, I enjoyed it. I thought it was good. And then you have Better Call Saul. And actually, Better Call Saul started out, like, pretty goofy. And now it is, like, incredibly turnt in right. the way that Breaking Bad was. And, like, I actually don't even know how turnt because I just sort of fell off of it after a few seasons. But it's like they can't help it. Like, everything has to be this super intense, like, really dramatic edge of your seat like somebody's gonna die thing or just like a really sad story or something i don't find that there's like a lot of lighthearted stuff and i don't know i don't think you really watched a lot of adventure time or like got really into adventure time i don't know if you did eric um uh, done it all um, I think, right? but so i like i i feel really torn on this uh 
But personally, like, I really loved Adventure Time initially because it was, like, a really nice, like, 11 minutes of just goofy shit, the funniest, like, dumbest stuff. And it would just make me laugh, like, random stuff. And that's, like, close, I can think, to being sort of a gaggy cartoon because it was very much one of those shows where some wild stuff would go down and then the next episode is, like, nothing ever happened. And a lot of it was just, like, here's a funny thing, like, and that's it, move on. So it, it wasn't really gaggy in the same way that a Looney Tunes is, but Mm -hmm. it just, like, hit me that same way, kind of. Like, we're going through a dungeon, and here's, like, the funny stuff that's in the dungeon. Um, You know, whatever. And then in the later seasons, it got very moody and intense, and I was like, no, thank you. And I never finished it. And I I know some people think that it was great at the end, and I actually still, I probably will someday go and finish it, because I am curious, and sometimes it's, like, the wrong time in your life, sort of, for that kind of, you know, whatever. But I was just, like... Oh, like I actually didn't, I wasn't expecting there to be like layers and layers and layers of secret substantiation underneath these characters. I don't think there's anything wrong with doing that, but it's like, it's completely not what I liked initially. Yeah. And so I ended up bouncing off of it pretty hard. And again, like, I don't think there's anything wrong with doing that. It's just like, I think it might be hard in this day and age to not do that anymore. Like, is there a market for a... Looney Tune these days. Well, they did try to bring it back, but I think it was more like, look how we recreated the magic of those mm-hmm. as best we can, it, which makes them kind of nothing. Well, yeah, it's middling it best because they also had like the Mickey yeah. Mouse. They have a very slick, like modernized version yeah. of Mickey Mouse cartoons, and I haven't really seen very many of them. I at think all. little kids just plow through that content, and it, well, it probably yeah, resonates like, to some degree. I don't but... think it's going to have the longevity no, that stuff like this did. Yeah. Uh, I, again, I don't know because I didn't really watch those, but it's just, I just don't think there are that. Like, what's Opera Dog came out in theaters. Mm-hmm. I think it was preceding a film, I assume, but that mm-hmm. like that's why people made this stuff. We're just kind of not in that space anymore. So you know, is there a studio out there that's going to pay me? <laughs> the answer is no. <laughs> uh, <that's laughs> to tell pay, jokes, yeah, pay me to do like six minute shorts about these like random kind yeah. of one dimensional characters. I just don't know that that is happening as much. And even like kids cartoons, I feel like tend to have a more serious thread. Like I watched, I'm sort of rambling at this point and I apologize, <laughs> but the one that I did watch somewhat recently was Summer Camp Island on HBO. It was the one that Julian Glander actually did mm-hmm. a guest episode for. Um, but Neil and I, like my husband, we threw it on during the pandemic and ended up being really charmed by it. And it's very short format episodes and it's very sort of like soft and gentle but also quite like funny and random and like very magical like kids at a magic Mm -hmm. summer camp type deal and I liked it and even then like eventually it started to be like okay the the like teen who runs this camp is like a really moody like bitchy kind of witch character who treats the kids like shit and it's like kind of funny and then they're like we got to unpack that like what's her deal and I was like no you don't have to like she could just be that (laughs) way and it's fine yeah and I don't even think that it necessarily took away from it. It was just like everything starts to go that way Mm -hmm. now. Like if they made Looney Tunes now, would eventually it be like, okay, here's why Bugs is like (laughs) Right. Well, I think that's the inevitable journey of something that is trying to retain an audience by by creating must-see plotting of like, it's all leading to this, whatever phrase every like last Star Wars, last Game of Thrones, last Stranger Things episode needs. And you can you have to do that by like getting people to like invest in a character, even if it kind of sucks and it's not what you signed up for. Because Eric, I remember like um, 
back to your rutabaga comic, which was like a really gag based kid comic with like light plotting and like emotional moments. But I remember there was a point mm-hmm. where you wanted to do a third book with your publisher and you're like, I want to kind of investigate this world in a kind of in a different tone at like kind of a deeper character level. And I remember there was like a resistance from them of that. So, it, I mean, I think it comes down to market a little bit. I don't know. Am I uh, describing that scenario accurately? To some uh, it was or? it was more that um, I felt that the main character at the beginning of book one is the same exact guy at the end of book two. So that's just like unsatis- not satisfying for you, maybe, as the creator. It was... Um, I had read a lot more. I had experienced a lot more and I was like, Oh, it's not so much that I, I wanted to turn my little uh, fantasy adventure comic into the next game of Thrones. I didn't want to go all dark and, and everything like that, but I wanted, I, I couldn't answer the question satisfactorily for myself, which is what would happen if Rutabaga was in this situation? I wouldn't, I'd just feel like, uh, he'd be upbeat and oh, he'd okay. solve it yeah. by cooking. It's like, well, what about this? What's he afraid of? And I didn't have an answer. Mm-hmm. So it was things like that. Like, what? what is his personality um, besides upbeat and positive and um, nonviolent? And yeah, so that that's, that's really where it came from. Um, and probably also a lot of being influenced by um, seeing all these, seeing what books win awards and what they, what they're, stories are about and be like oh i gotta put that stuff in my book in order to sure, win yeah. so you know some of it was probably bad and shouldn't have been installed in my brain i shouldn't have let it get installed in there but it did and here we are um <laughs> well i think that's probably the case with like you know the adventure time team is like they want to push what they want to do um yeah that's what right. i feel like i in a way i feel bad about it because like you can clearly see with like pendleton ward's other work like then he like did midnight gospel which yeah. is like exactly what you started to see peeking out of adventure time as it got a little weirder and i think midnight gospel is really cool and interesting um so it's like i don't begrudge it it's just that like you i feel like you can't maintain it anymore and like sometimes yeah. i just want a character that i like to hang out with like you yeah, watch a yeah. looney tune because it's fun to spend time with that character not because i need to find out like what point in bugs's arc like is he in and i it's hard to think of characters that are like that now mm-hmm. that don't eventually spiral into something a little more dramatic like his mom played wagner mm-hmm. for him when he was like a baby bunny yeah it's like oh like he actually is like in drag all the time because like and, oh and, that's, and then his that like, would plot be, yeah. turns to be like about that which mm-hmm. i wouldn't hate mm-hmm. i guess i'd be curious to see <laughs> could you do this i don't know but i um did a little other research i was curious what else was happening at the time in cartoons and same year, 1957, Hanna-Barbera had been trying a little bit, but they had been bringing cartoons to TV. And when they did that, they had to find ways to cut costs because it's too expensive to make a however long thing, 27 of them for a whole season. And I thought it was very interesting that the show that debuted in the same year was called Rough and Ready. And it looks like um, a Hanna-Barbera cartoon, that, like as you'd imagine. Very limited animation, even more limited animation. Um, basically, a complete still with the mouth moving. And it's a cat named 
Ruff and or the dog named Ruff. I don't know. And they get abducted by pirate aliens or something like that. But <laughs> standard it, plot for the time. Yeah, you know, <laughs> um, man versus man, man versus environment, <laughs> dog and cat versus space pirates. Um, and it was almost instantly a kind of like a high concept sitcom. Mm. It what there were like there were jokes where the main character would say something or they'd have a shoe on their head or something like that. It's like, that's not how you wear shoes, you goof type of thing. And like, oh yeah, that's a joke. That's That looks like a Funny joke. Funny way to run a railroad. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, they seemingly almost instantly went into um, long form storytelling or those like you know uh like like how the flintstones is influenced by uh honeymooners yeah right 30 minutes long premise Uh uh-oh premise over (laughs) everything's been solved that the looney tunes gag cartoon that we grew up watching on television that where they took these six minute things and turned them into a half hour show and that's how i thought they were created when i was a kid i thought it was a half hour show on television um seemingly from the research i was able to do everything is with an asterisk on this didn't exist on tv either watching gag cartoons on tv Mm. because before rough and ready it was um like they took comic panels and turned them into cartoons by just putting a camera on it and then panning over a panel and no animation at all and even that was inspired by like dick tracy and things like that where they were like these kind of serious cartoons that were telling these long stories over a half hour, 20 minutes, however long they were. Mm -hmm. So even then, when you have these amazing gag cartoons in the theaters, you go to watch TV, you watch a cartoon on TV and you didn't have that. They, they didn't translate over. So maybe it's TV. (laughs) TV can't do it. We got to kill TV. It literally can't. TV. Yeah. TV really can't do a lot of, a lot of things in terms of storytelling. There's something that's just always lost in terms of like a direct to TV movie, even, even if it, felt like it was supposed to be in the theater, you know, things like that. Or like you're saying, these like shows that go on and on because X, you know, streaming service has so much money to just keep creating that stream of content. You could say Looney Tunes is almost that in a way where they're like pumping out the content, but it still has like this room. Not that, I I mean, I guess everything, everything has like its, it's what's opera doc, right? Like Breaking Bad has its episodes that like stand out. Every show probably has something like this, but it is re- really like a matter of are people finding it? Like, is it getting lost between the cracks? Is it the right story for the right medium type of stuff? Like this is so perfectly uh, like short that plays at the beginning of a bigger feature that mm-hmm. any other context for it, like, you know, it, it it's not quite as strong. Like, this is a thing I'm like, oh, I would have loved to have, like, seen this for the first time in a theater. That I would have. That, yeah, that's the other context we're losing. Lost it. On a huge screen. Like, and, I'm like, not an audience who is also screen, enjoying it. Yeah. Yeah, right. like, the audience is audibly reacting. Right. They know these characters for, you know, the last, like, many uh how long at least 12 years right because i as quickly as me pointing out that the one like anti-nazi piece was well no seven years before not 12 um 
But anyway, no. And a, but on a high volume of output for them to no, be. No, 12 years. Yeah. Yeah, churning out 45. so many in a year. Yeah, that's a lot yeah. of. I don't know how many Looney Tunes episodes there are, but in my mind, it's like thousands. It can't be. Maybe it is. I don't know. But yeah. it, I feel like it's a lot. It's so many. Well, we've got this good Chuck Jones quote here that kind of like Ooh, another. pulls. This, this is the last one. It's a long one. It's cute. Um, so I feel like this kind of like speaks to the idea of like what it meant to, to have this kind of career and make this kind of work at the time. So Chuck Jones says, we didn't know what the hell we were doing. <laughs> and we certainly weren't aware we were doing anything worthwhile. That's sad. We I thought- actually love that. Pressure's off. Yeah, Keep that's going. true. But yeah, like I think that's a good attitude. To okay, have. well, okay. So good start for a check. Keep yourself, <laughs> uh, stay humble. We thought <laughs> Disney was the Rolls Royce, and at best, we were doing the Tin Lizzies. I don't know what a Tin Lizzie is. What the hell is that? A, a cute little shitty car. It's probably a type of railroad. I don't know. They were all about <laughs> rail travel back then. And that wasn't a downgrade at all. So you're right. Yeah, it's like they're just different things. It's like a Looney Tunes isn't lesser than a, a Snow White or a Fantasia. Chuck Jones said this. I like this. In fact, I, I'm really trying to teach myself to think this way. We were very proud to be professionals. And that's what we thought of ourselves as being. And I think that's the best thing in the world to say somebody's a professional. <laughs> Why are these quotes so dorky? It, well, like, think of the time. I mean, it's like... <laughs> it's really cute, it's, though. You're not wrong. It's the 1950s, right? It's like there's no real rock and roll movie. I mean, where where is Elvis at this stage? Like, people are... One dude's shaking his hips on television, and they're panning the camera off. You're like, oh, God. <laughs> like, the, the, the quaintness of the pursuit of just a steady job, doing something that's pretty sweet, and just trying to stay in that box and, like... Grabbing a couple weeks from a Roadrunner cartoon so you can tell your Wagner thing because you like have some classical records at home and and you want to be a little artsy. In fact, this might have been the artsy thing. This might have been late era yeah. uh, adventure time for that context. It feels like that to me. You that's what, honestly, frankly, <laughs> and that's like I'm like calling it dorky, but like to me, that's like the dream scenario in this day and age. Like, you know, when I was a young baby child i was like oh, i'm gonna work at disney someday and then disney was like she no we won't because of 2d animations canceled and then it was pixar was a thing blah 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 and now i'm like kind of like well thank god none of that happened for me because like no thanks it's <laughs> not the, the lifestyle that i want to live but like i would love to just be like here's my crew we like hang out every day and we make our thing that we want to make and we like bullshit and we we steal time from other episodes to like put it into the stuff that we're passionate about. And we just feel very invested in the thing we're doing. Like yeah. that is really nice. So I'm like laughing and being like, I think it's really cool to call somebody a professional. Like that's awesome. But I don't know. To me, it's like, he's like, I'm living my dream. And I think yeah. that's really awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the perfect like structure, creative structure for him. It seems. Cause he didn't really, I mean, this was, it's not like this was it. This Maybe this was, you could say, his peak performance here. But, like, he really didn't go on to do anything else create uh, weird or more interesting or better other than more of this, right? Chuck Jones. <laughs> like, see, it's hard to talk about someone who just aspires to be a professional because it just sounds like you're insulting his art. <laughs> well, I actually think it. it's hard to talk about it, too, because, like, it's so well known. So yeah. it's hard to be like, and then he did this weird thing that nobody's ever heard of. And it's like, no, he's not because you've all heard of him. And that's more praise <laughs> than it is insult. Yeah. It's just, you know, we've all seen The Grinch. Chuck Jones was best described as punctual. 
Who said that? <laughs> I'm just saying it's like the top, oh, okay. you know. I was like, who quoted that? <laughs> I think that's a Spinal Tap joke, actually. Like, Well, uh, very people called me Charles at the time, but uh, sure, you can call me Chuck Jones, I suppose. That's true. I'm being very casual. That's very straight guy. of you to say. Mr. Jones. Yeah, too straight. Too straight. Well, that's all for now. Eric, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. You're welcome. <laughs> Anytime. Uh, <laughs> well, I can never do this again. Tomorrow, I guess. <laughs> yeah, we'll be here. Um, okay, well, why don't you tell the people where they can find you and what are you working on these days? Uh, you can find me on internet um, uh, at uh, rutabagacomic.com is where you can read my Rutabaga comic. It's all up there for free. Uh, if you yeah. want to buy a book, that would be nice as well. Hell yeah. um, I'm working on a new book now about uh, ghost hunting kids Ooh. on Whoa. bikes. So that is peak Eric. Yeah. Um, and if you want to see, uh, if you want to play a video game that's really fun, and it's one of the greatest things I've ever worked on in my life, uh, download Knockout City. It's free. It's on everything. Uh, Switch, PlayStation, PC, Xbox, uh, all those things. Um, I, yeah, it's, it's great. It's my favorite game. I write all of it. So if you like it, it's because of me. That's don't tell anybody else I said that, please. If you don't like it, get out of here. That's not true. That's not true. (laughs) So if you want to rate Eric's existence, uh, check out that game. Uh, and you can check out our Cartoon Feelings episode archive and other facts about Caitlin and I at cartoonfeelings.com and you can tweet at us or join us on Instagram and both of those are at Feeling Cartoons. True, Ira. And if you, audience, are enjoying this podcast, please take five minutes out of your day, rate us on Apple Podcasts, leave a review, uh, save a life, and if you... (laughs) If you leave a funny or a cool review, we'll read it free of charge. Like we won't even charge you for that or pay you, but consider it. Thanks. Bye. Okay. This is an after hours bit. You know where Bug says bye. Yeah. Bye. Is that, bye. is that what we're, we're doing all no. these years later? Wouldn't that be great? I don't think so. Okay. That's a great question. It's almost the same. Bye. Yeah. Almost. That's something I do a lot just for context. A lot of people do it. Yeah. It feels good. But just in this, yeah, particular. Let's all do it together on the count of three. Okay. Sure. One, two, three. Bye. Bye. See, I told you. Bye. He hesitated. I didn't do it then. It's my. Bye. (laughs) End the podcast.